This is Music Notes and More with your host, Jason Ginty. And away we go. This week, we're talking about ACDC and Hoover vacuum cleaners. Aerosmith bail out their fans. Janis Joplin joins the 27 Club. Sinead O'Connor tears up the Pope. Tom Petty dies. And Van Halen go extreme. Thanks for listening to the podcast every week. Be sure to tell your friends about it. Share it on social media. And, of course, listen every Friday when a new episode is released. And subscribe. That way you are always in the know. For the week of September the 30th, let's take a look back in music history. It was this week back in 2017 that Tom Petty died of an accidental drug overdose of several different medications. He was 66 years of age. Now, he had suffered a bunch of different problems before his October 2nd death. Now, despite some painful injuries, he insisted on keeping his commitment to his fans, and he toured for 53 dates with a fractured hip. And, as he did, it worsened over time to a more serious injury. According to Tom Petty's wife, Dana, she says, quote, On the day he died, he was informed that his hip had graduated to a full-on break, and it's our feeling that the pain was just simply unbearable, and that was the cause for his overuse of medication. Now, the cause of death was multi-system organ failure uh, due to the drug toxicity in his system, and the manner of death was an accident, according to the medical examiner's uh, report. Petty also suffered from coronary artery uh, disease and emphysema. Now, as a family, they recognized this report would spark a further discussion on the opioid crisis, and they felt it was a healthy and necessary discussion. They hope in some way this uh, report that they released, which they didn't have to, uh, can save lives. Many people who overdose begin with a legitimate injury or simply don't understand the potency of the deadly nature of their medications they take. Now, Tom Petty had talked about his drug problems in the past, and it was no doubt he was a heavy drinker as well. In a 2015 biography, Tom Petty discussed his struggle with heroin addiction. And uh, following the collapse of his 20-year marriage and a failed album, that's when he turned to heroin. Tom Petty was 66 years of age. Now, I was lucky enough, and by lucky, I mean really lucky, to see Tom Petty on that last tour. He played Jazz Fest in New Orleans. And what's interesting about Jazz Fest, it's, it's an outdoor festival and it was raining all day. They had postponed the start time of the festival, and they had to cancel a bunch of bands. Tom Petty's headlining, of course. So around 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the rain stops. They open the gates, and, and me and some friends are sitting around going, I don't know, man. It's going to be muddy out there. I don't know. Do we really want to go see Tom Petty? Well, we did. And there was no mud, really, and there was hardly anybody there. And we were close to the stage at an outdoor festival, and Tom Petty comes out, and is just having the time of his life. He just looks happy. He, well, he may be on drugs because his hip was broke. I don't know. But either way, it was an amazing set. And then a few months later, Tom Petty was dead. So glad I got my ass off the couch. Happy birthday this week to ACDC singer Brian Johnson, born in 1947. Now, he joined ACDC in 1980 after the death of Bon Scott. Johnson's first group was called Gobi Desert Canoe Club. 
Bon Scott had actually seen Johnson singing on stage one time, which included Johnson screaming at the top of his voice, rolling around on the stage, and finally being carried off. Uh, What no one realized was that Johnson was taken to the hospital where he was diagnosed with appendicitis after the gig. Bon Scott passes away a few years later, and ACDC are in need of a new singer. So Johnson goes into a studio and records the most metal jingle of all time for Hoover vacuum cleaners and makes about 700 bucks for the job. He then, immediately afterwards, walks across the street to Vanilla Studios where ACDC was holding their auditions. Johnson opens the door to the studio and there sits Angus Young, Malcolm Young, Phil Rudd, and Cliff Williams. They're sitting there jamming and he walks in and goes, Hi, I'm Brian from Newcastle. So Malcolm brings Johnson over a bottle of beer which he chugs and then he sings a bunch of songs with the band and a couple of days later, Brian Johnson is offered the gig to sing for ACDC. They immediately get to work on the Back in Black album. I was always a big fan of watching Saturday Night Live and especially got excited about the musical guests each week. This was a great chance to see your favorite acts perform live because you probably weren't going to go see them in concert, so this was a great opportunity. Well, it was this week back in 1992 that Sinead O'Connor was the musical guest on Saturday Night Live. Now, she's famous for a song that was written by Prince called Nothing Compares to You. She sang an a cappella version of Bob Marley's song called War, uh, which she intended as a protest against sexual abuse of children in the Catholic Church, referring to child abuse rather than racism. So she twisted it around a little bit. Well, she then presented... A photo and held up a photo of Pope John Paul II to the camera while singing the word evil, after which she tore the photo into pieces and said, fight the real enemy, and threw the pieces towards the camera. Well, this incident occurred nine years before John Paul II acknowledged the sexual abuse within the Catholic Church. Now, Saturday Night Live had no idea she was going to do this. You see, because during dress rehearsal, she held up a photo of a refugee child. And when she tore up the picture of the Pope on live TV, the audience in the studio was completely silent. Nobody booed. Nobody clapped. Executive producer Lorne Michaels recalled that the air went out of the studio. And he ordered that the applause sign not be used. A nationwide audience saw O'Connor's live performance. NBC received more than 4,400 complaint calls in total. Now, contrary to a rumor that's been floating around for years, NBC was not fined by the Federal Communications Commission for O'Connor's Act, as the FCC has no regulatory power over this kind of behavior. NBC did not edit the performance out of the West Coast tape-delayed broadcast that night. Now, as of 2016, NBC broadcast rerun uh, the episode still, but they use footage from the dress rehearsal. In 2002, uh, when asked if she would change anything about her Saturday Night Live appearance, Sinead O'Connor said, hell no. 
It was this week back in 1970 that Janis Joplin was found dead of a heroin overdose at age 27. Now, she had just finished recording most of her second album called Pearl. Now, Janis had problems starting back in early 1969. She was allegedly shooting about $200 worth of heroin per day, which is the equivalent to about $1,400 worth of heroin per day today. Now, Janice appeared at Woodstock, of course, uh, starting at 2 a.m. in the morning on Sunday, August 17, 1969. Now, Joplin informed her band that they would be performing at the concert as if it was just another gig, but it was Woodstock. So on Saturday afternoon, when she and the band were flown by helicopter to the festival site, Joplin saw the enormous crowd gathered at Woodstock, and she instantly became very, very nervous and excited. Now, Joplin was eager to get on the stage and perform, but was repeatedly delayed as bands were contractually obligated to perform ahead of Joplin. She was faced with a 10-hour wait after arriving at the backstage area. So what do you do? Well, Joplin shot heroin and drank booze, and by the time of reaching the stage, Joplin was basically three sheets to the wind. Now, the Who's Pete Townsend, who was there, said that she had been amazing at Monterey uh, prior. But tonight, she was at her best, due probably to the long delay and probably, too, to the amount of booze and heroin she consumed while she waited. But even Janice on a sort of off night was incredible. Joplin checked into the Landmark Hotel in Hollywood, August 24, 1970. That's right near Sunset Sound uh, Recording Studio where she did begin rehearsing and recording her new album. September 26, 1970, Joplin recorded vocals for Half Moon and Cry Baby. Now, the session ended with Joplin making a special one-minute recording as a birthday gift to John Lennon. Joplin was among several singers who had been contacted by Yoko Ono with with a request for a taped greeting for Lennon's 30th birthday on October the 9th. So Joplin chose the Dale Evans song called Happy Trails, you've heard it, uh, as part of the greeting. Later, John Lennon told uh, Dick Cavett on TV uh, that Joplin's recorded birthday wishes arrived at his home after she was dead. On Sunday afternoon, October 4th, 1970, Uh, The album Pearl's producer, Paul Rothschild, you might recognize that name. He did a lot of the early albums for The Doors. He became concerned when Joplin failed to show up at Sunset Sound uh, for a recording session. So later that evening, her road manager drove to the Landmark Hotel in Hollywood where Joplin was staying. Now, upon entering Joplin's room, room 105, by the way, he found her dead on the floor beside the bed. The official cause of death was a heroin overdose, possibly compounded by alcohol. It is widely believed that Joplin had been given heroin that was much more potent than normal, as several of her dealers' other customers also overdosed that week. The posthumous Pearl album, released in 1971 after her death, became the biggest-selling album of her career and featured her biggest hit single, which was a cover of Chris Christopherson's song, Me and Bobby McGee. A few months later after it was released, it went to number one.
This week back in 1945, Elvis Presley appeared in a talent show at the age of 10. It was his very first public appearance. Now, he won second place and $5. But he wasn't discouraged, you see, because things worked out okay for Elvis through the years, as it is estimated that more than 1 billion Elvis records have been sold worldwide, more than anyone in record industry history. He also starred in 31 feature films as an actor and two theatrically released concert documentary films. Uh, And for a number of years, he was one of Hollywood's top box office draws. I think the second place finish in the talent show at age 10 did not discourage Elvis Presley. This week, back in 1996, Van Halen announced that Gary Sharon, formerly of Extreme, would be the singer that would replace Sammy Hagar. They released one album called Van Halen 3. (sighs) Well, Van Halen 3 is known for not selling too many copies, and its overall critically negative reviews and its minimal use of Michael Anthony on bass guitar. That's what it's known for. And it's also known for collecting a lot of dust on my shelf over there. I haven't listened to that thing in years. It's just not good. And it's a shame because Gary Sharon is a talented singer, and of course Van Halen is Van Halen. It just didn't work out. Michael Anthony only played bass on the songs Without You, One I Want, and Fire in the Hole. You probably don't even know those songs. Either way, Eddie Van Halen recorded bass for the rest of the album. Now, after Michael Anthony's departure from Van Halen, he confirmed that Eddie Van Halen dictated to him how to play the bass on the record. He said by the time of making this album, Eddie was playing the bass more and he was playing the drums. Michael Anthony says, quote, I don't know if Eddie was basically making a solo record, which is what Van Halen 3 seemed like to me. They ended up touring with Gary for the record, but he was eventually ousted. They went on hiatus for a few years and then Sammy was back in the band until, well, He was kicked out, and then Dave was back, and yeah, that's a lot of story for another time. You know, a lot of people are under the impression that being backstage at a concert is a cool place to hang out. It's where all the action is, man. It's where it's fun. Well, I've been lucky enough to be backstage numerous times, and really, it ain't that cool. And sometimes it can get downright out of hand, like this week back in 1974. Leonard Skinner and Blue Oyster Cult, they got into a fight. Yeah, well, see, Leonard Skinner was in the middle of their huge meteor- meteoric rise in 1974, and they somehow found themselves second build behind Blue Oyster Cult for a show in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, worse, they were forced to use the headliner sound system, which uh, is a situation that reportedly created a lot of friction to spark a fight between the crew members. You see, what happens is one of Leonard Skinner's roadies apparently claimed that the sound was deliberately tampered with during their set. Another crew member accused frontman Ronnie Van Zant of Leonard Skinner of drunkenly disconnecting his own power. Now, during the latter part of the show, it may have indeed been the song Freebird, of course, Van Zant began slinging the microphone around on stage uh, on, in his cord, and being as drunk as he was, eventually he hit it against something, and then the cord uh, and the microphone kind of broke, and it, it kept cutting out. So the sound guy for Blue Oyster Cult did his job and went to the stage, 
from behind the house mixing board in an effort to fix the problem. And when he gets backstage, he's met at the top of the stairs by a Leonard Skinner roadie who tried to stop him from coming on stage. So the Bloister called sound guy lays him out with one punch and says, get out of the way. I got to fix some stuff on stage. Then, of course, he gets jumped by all the Leonard Skinner roadies. Now, while he was trying to get another mic going for Ronnie, that's all he was trying to do, fix the problem. Now, as he was getting his ass beat, the sound guy turned off most of the power amps for the PA and went back to the front of the house board. While an infuriated Leonard Skinner finished their set, they then jumped off stage and they were pretty hell-bent on whipping everybody's ass in the building. The cops were called, but the situation was quickly diffused. The dude was just trying to help. It was this week back in 1965 that Bob Dylan performed at Carnegie Hall in New York City. Which, of course, anytime Dylan performed, it was an event. But this was kind of an interesting show because he introduced his new touring band on this uh, night. And let me just run down the names of his touring band. You might recognize it. Robbie Robertson. Rick Danko. Levon Helm. Yeah, that was his backing band. And he called them The Band. Now, later, they went off on their own, and they were simply known as The Band. It was this week back in 1978 that Aerosmith were playing a show in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And during the show, the arena was raided by the police. You see, the cops cited a number of the concert goers for possession of marijuana and arrested other concert goers for smoking the marijuana at a concert in the 1970s. Well, either way, there are also people getting busted for underage drinking. It just seems to go hand in hand with a concert, doesn't it? Well, either way, the disruption pissed off Steven Tyler, who called the police scumbags from the stage. Now, Tyler, of course, known as one of the toxic twins, was a regular user of all kinds of drugs back in the day, including cocaine, acid, speed, pot, alcohol, red hash, tie sticks, and Nepalese temple balls. Yes, Nepalese temple balls are a real thing. Either way, Steven Tyler got pissed at the fact that his audience members were being busted for marijuana. So Tyler and the entire band was so bothered by the overbearing police response to a couple of kids having some fun at a rock show, man, that they offered to bail out anybody that was arrested that night. Somewhere between 30 and 60 people were arrested, and nearly 30 accepted the band's help. The band paid over $4,000 in a later court appearance to get the kids out of trouble. According to a recent scientific study, Queen's song, We Are the Champions, is found to be one of the catchiest songs ever written. A musicologist from the University of London conducted research into what makes a song memorable and compiled a list of 10 catchiest songs of all time. During the research, they discovered that sing-along songs contain four key elements, long and detailed musical phrases, multiple pitch changes in the song's hook or the chorus, male vocalists, and higher male voices making a noticeable vocal effort. YMCA by The Village People, Some 41's Fat Lip, and Europe's The Final Countdown were also on the list. 
It was this week back in 1954 that guitar great Stevie Ray Vaughan was born. Now, unfortunately, he was killed in a helicopter crash August 27, 1990. His family actually successfully sued the operators of the company for allowing an unqualified pilot to fly in fog and were awarded two million bucks. Now, a lot of people don't realize that Stevie Ray Vaughan actually played guitar for David Bowie on his Let's Dance album. They met at the 1982 Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland. Now, they hit it off. It's sort of an odd pairing, but they hit it off really well, and David Bowie asked Stevie Ray Vaughan to play guitar on the album. Stevie Ray Vaughan later said that David Bowie does not mess around in the studio, and he's really easy to work with. He knows exactly what he wants. He comes right in, and he gets to work. He says that most of the time, David did the vocals, and then I played my guitar parts. A lot of the time, he just wanted me to cut loose. He'd give his opinion on the stuff he liked and the stuff that needed work. Almost everything on the Let's Dance album that uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan recorded was cut in one or two takes. There was only one thing that needed three takes. It was this week back in 1969 that the Beatles' Abbey Road album went to number one. This is the final studio recordings from the group and supposedly contained a bunch of clues adding to the Paul is dead phenomenon. Here we go. Let me get this conspiracy theory ramped up. Paul is barefoot on the album cover, right? It's an iconic cover. They're walking across the street, right? The band is. Paul's barefoot, and the car number license plate reads LMW281F. Now, supposedly, this refers to the fact that McCartney would be 28 years old if he were still alive at the time. Right. LMW was said to stand for Linda McCartney Weeps. Right. And the four Beatles represent the priest, John, dressed in white, the undertaker, Ringo, in a black suit, the corpse, of course, Paul, in a suit, but barefoot, and the grave digger, George, wearing jeans and a denim work shirt. Ah, yes, conspiracy theorists had a field day with that. It was this week back in 1973 that Elton John released his seventh studio album called Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Now, as he was working on the album, he had different names for the title, including Vodka and Tonics and Silent Movies, Talking Pictures. So yes, he uh, evolved as the work on the album continued. Bernie Taupin wrote the lyrics for the album in two and a half weeks, with Elton John composing most of the music in three days. That's right, three days. Coke is a hell of a drug. Uh, He was staying at the Pink Flamingo Hotel in Jamaica. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road has now sold over 30 million copies worldwide. The Music Notes and More podcast is written, produced, and voiced by me, Jason Ginty. We release a new episode every single Friday. Be sure to like, listen, and of course, subscribe. And you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 